Good evening. Uh, welcome to LSE uh, for this event. Uh, I'm David Metcalf. I'm an emeritus professor in the Centre for Economic uh, Performance here at the LSE. Um, it's an honour, of course, to welcome Alan, Alan Manning. Um, he's a professor of economics and uh, a director, the director of the community programme in the uh, Centre for Economic Performance. And I'm also delighted to welcome uh, Nicola Smith, who's Head of Economic and Social Affairs at the TUC. Um, this event is called The Minimum Wage in the UK and Beyond, and is, I'm told by Soraya, the sixth lecture in the series of LSE Works. Uh, this is the third series. They had one in 2011 and one in uh, 2013. And it's in a way of showcasing some LSE uh, research and how that then uh, interacts with policy. I've been asked to announce that the next one uh, will be given by uh, LSE International History colleague uh, Dr. Christina Spohr and it's called uh, Beyond the Cold War, How Summits Shaped the New World Order and it's on Thursday the 5th of March again at 6.30 in the Hong Kong uh, in the Hong Kong Theatre. Yeah. Uh, let me just say a word or two about the centre um, for economic performance. I mean, we've done lots of different things, but the centre was absolutely pivotal in the development of the national minimum wage. Alan, Alan will go into to that uh, in detail. I, I may have said a little bit about it at uh, some stage, but I mean, it's in terms of providing uh, members of the Low Pay Commission, which sets the minimum wage, but perhaps more importantly in the research which underpins uh, the setting of the national minimum wage and checking on the outcomes. And as I think some people will know, it, it, the national minimum wage was voted by the Political Studies Association as the most successful government policy over a 30-year period. I think it was voted last year. So the, the fact that the centre here at LSE has played such a pivotal role, crucial role in its development, I think is uh, very important. Um, for those of you who are Twitter users in the audience, I've always, got enough, I've always thought I've got enough friends, so I'm not. Okay. Um, the hashtag for day, today's event is, I'm told, hash LSE works. But I would ask you, please, to put your phones onto silent so as not to disrupt the event. It's also being recorded, and it will be made as, into a podcast, assuming there's no technical difficulties. Um, after the lecture, there will be plenty of scope for asking questions to Alan and to Nicola, and uh, we, we, you know, we will aim to uh, finish by 8 o'clock, but uh, there should be plenty of time for audience participation. Thank you. So over to Alan. Okay. Um, thank you very much. Um, I want to start just by um, talking a little bit about... Uh, giving you a brief overview of, of the talk. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the history on the UK experience with minimum wages, and I'm going to sort of interweave that with uh, the research that uh, we did at CP on the minimum wage. That's going to lead into uh, the work about the period surrounding the establishment of the national minimum wage, and I want to talk a little bit about the evidence on the impact that that has had and then, as David has already hinted at, um, it's generally perceived to have been a very successful policy, not just in the UK, but actually beyond the UK. So uh, a number of other countries have looked to the UK experience 
um, to influence um, the way that they approach minimum wages in their country. And then I just want to finish up by talking a little bit about the future of the national minimum wage um, in, the U- in the UK. So a very brief history of uh, minimum wages in the UK pre-1992. So the story really starts with Winston Churchill in uh, 1909. So he was then president of the Board of Trade. I guess that's the equivalent of Vince Cable uh, being head of biz uh, today. And um, he established what were called the wages councils to set minimum wage rates in certain industries, what at the time were called the sweated trades. Um, and if you ask why, well, why did he think that was a, a good policy, he, you know, there's a quote that, from Winston Churchill here, well, it, it is a serious national evil that any class of his majesty's subjects should receive less than a living wage in return for their utmost exertions. It's kind of interesting that he's using the phrase living wage over 100 years ago when today that we often hear that quite a lot. Um, and this system just sort of continued for the, for the best part of the century um, but by, and the, the story I'm going to tell starts in really in 1992, by 1992 it was fairly clearly an archaic system. Um, it covered some very small industries. For example, there was a wages council for the ostrich and fancy feather and artificial flower industry. Now, people had worn, I guess quite a lot of people had worn ostrich feathers in 1909. By 1992, not many people were doing it, at least, at least not in public. Um, <laughs> It also, uh, you know, so it covered some very small industries that had once been important, were no longer important, but it also didn't cover at all some very large, low-paid industries by 1992. In particular, it tended not to cover any of the personal service occupations like cleaning uh, and social care. And and the story always being told that um, they were excluded way back in 1909 because in order to get the legislation through the House of Lords, Winston Churchill had to assure... Um, the lords that their servants were not going to be covered by, um, they weren't going to have to pay higher wages to their servants. Um, so by 1992, there's a, there's a sort of very widespread perception uh, that there was a sort of a need for, need for change. Um, but in the 1992 general election, what the nature of that change w- was going to be was very much... Um, was, was, there was a big division between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. So in the 1992 election, Labour was proposing to introduce a national minimum wage. It was actually the first time that it had proposed to do it. Um, prior to that, um, many trade unions had not been greatly in favour of minimum wages because they, I think they felt that um, if there was a, they, it was their job to set wages and negotiate wages and protect the low paid. And if the national minimum wage was, was going to do the same thing, then what were the trade unions for? But in the 1980s, I think you, the union's attitude had changed because that was a period in which um, trade unions had lost a lot of power and they were now looking to um, support a national minimum wage. But in contrast to that, the Conservatives were proposing actually to abolish the 26 remaining wages councils which uh, would have left the UK without any kind of minimum wage uh, legislation at all. Now, if you go back to that period quite a long time ago now, the arguments for and against the minimum wage um, then were pretty much the same as they are now. 
So you would have found those in favour of the minimum wage arguing that minimum wages were necessary to protect against sort of extreme exploitation in the labour market and that it was an important part of an anti-poverty strategy. And the argument against being essentially that minimum wages actually um, destroy jobs um, and so it may actually harm those that it seek to help, that it wasn't, minimum wages weren't very well targeted on, on the poor, on poor households because many uh, minimum wage workers might be things like t- people like teenagers who weren't necessarily in, in poor households. And so those are the main sort of battle lines um, then and now and pretty much everywhere else when you, you kind of look at arguments about the minimum wage. Now, popular opinion was, has always been quite strongly in favour of minimum wages. Even people who are otherwise quite conservative often um, think the minimum wage is attractive because they sort of have a view that if people uh, work hard, um, there's something, you know, they should be able to provide a decent standard of living uh, for themselves and their family. But economists tended to be really, 25 years ago, very hostile to the minimum wage. And in general, it was sort of regarded as you were sort of really economically illiterate if you were in favour of, of the minimum wages. And that was reflected in all the sort of professional advice that um, economists sort of gave and, you know, international organisations and, and, and so on. Um, now, where did we get interested in this? So basically in the early 1990s, um, a few of us at CP, and there was an awful lot of work generally on, on labour markets going on um, at that time. I mean, David, you were the deputy director at that, that point, so under the auspices of, of David. But in particular, myself, Richard Dickens and Steve Machin became interested in the question about what actually had been the impact of the minimum wages set by wages councils. And that was partly inspired by um, the, these policy differences in the 1992 election campaign that I'd, I'd sort of described. Um, But it was also inspired by a new wave of academic research that was coming out of the the US, uh, which was really challenging the conventional wisdom uh, that minimum wages destroyed jobs. And that academic research in the US itself was connected to um, political battles that were going on there to raise the minimum wage, which in in the US um, there was a minimum wage, but it hadn't been raised for over over 10 years um, until the late 1980s. Um, and so it's worth sort of pausing a bit about to think about the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom is simply that the minimum wage destroys jobs. It pushes up wages, um, jobs get destroyed. And so, for example, um, there's a quote here from um, the OECD. In the, in the early 1990s, the OECD did a big piece of work called the Job Study. It was in the context of very high unemployment in, in many OECD countries and they came out with recommendations about what is good labour market policy and what is bad labour market policy and you could basically they were really quite hostile to minimum wages so they sort of argue you should reassess the role of minimum wages as an instrument to achieve goals and switch to more direct um, instruments by which they meant taxes and welfare benefits but then they sort of they said well if it is judged desirable then Um, consider minimising the adverse employment effects. It was simply taken as given that the minimum wage was going to destroy jobs and really the only jobs and the only question left was how many jobs it was going to to destroy. 
Now, where did that conventional wisdom come from? Well, it came from a very standard you know, um, economist model. So most economists thought the labour market was well approximated by um, the economist sort of ideal of a, of a perfectly competitive market. In that, in that ideal, market wages equate to supply and demand, and any institution that raises wages above the market clearing level causes the demand for labour to fall, causing job loss. And so strongly was that view held by some people that it was sort of argued that this is essentially a natural law. Um, and, you know, there were more than one person actually equated it to being a law in the same way that the law of gravity is. And so um, Finus Welsh, who's a quite a well-known American labour economist, who was giving testimony in Congress about the raising of the minimum wage, and he was criticising this work that had begun to be done by Alan Kruger and David Card, and he said, well, if you drop an apple and it rises, you should question your experiment before concluding that the laws of gravity have been repealed. I normally bring an apple along and just let go of it. I think the lecture would go much better if the apple shot to the ceiling, but it never has done, um, never has done yet. Um, But the problem with that conventional wisdom is really that the empirical evidence that minimum wages causes job loss is a lot weaker than the evidence for gravity. The evidence for gravity is pretty strong, I think, on on the whole. I I hope that isn't too controversial controversial here. Um, But, you know, and basically that was the point that David Card and Alan Kruger made in in, in the book that they published in 1994, which was called Myth and Measurement. But that book was extremely um, controversial at the time. And, you know, I think looking back now, it's hard to understand quite how controversial some of these things were at the time. But I think there's actually a lot of evidence that the relationship between employment and wages is, is, is not so simple. And I'm kind of going to illustrate that using an example which actually is not about the minimum wage, but it's a similar kind of idea. And that comes from uh, looking at what happened um, in the uh, Equal Pay Act So the Equal Pay Act was um, passed in 1970. That, for the first time, required men and women doing the same job to be paid uh, the same wages. And um, it basically raised the pay of women relative to men by a lot. So this is um, women's average earnings as a fraction of male average earnings, um, actually over a long period from 2000, uh, from the late 1940s till today. Um, and there's a general upward trend. Women are earning more relative to men. It's a different story, um, but also an interesting one. But you can also see that this period between the two red lines, which is when, um, uh, is the period between when the Equal Pay Act was passed in 1970 and when it became, and, and firms were given some time to adjust, but it became fully Um, everyone had to be fully compliant by 1975. And that was a period in which the the gender pay gap narrowed extremely fast. So the the Equal Pay Act had a very marked, noticeable effect on the pay of women relative to men. Now, again, the Equal Pay Act, if you look at it today, you can't find anybody who says, well, the Equal Pay Act is a bad idea and we should go back to what we had before. But at the time, it wasn't like that. It was very, very controversial. So here is a quote, is a newspaper article from the Times um, in the period when the Equal Pay Act is being debated in Parliament and, and so on. And, you know, it basically says there are strong indications that in industries heavily reliant upon large numbers of women, employers would cut back on female employment. The same idea. If you push up female wages, you're going to cut back 
reduce female employment. Executives suggested that men could be trained to do jobs traditionally done by women, and employers faced with the choice of a man or a woman at the same wages would opt for a man. So exactly the same argument, that if you artificially push up wages, as the Equal Pay Act was alleged to do, you're going to result in job losses for the affected workers. But if you actually look at um, the share of female employment uh, in this period, so this is female employment as a fraction of total employment, again, there's a general upward trend as women are entering the labour market, But again, you can see that this period between 1970 and 1975, when women's wages rose so strongly, absolutely nothing happened to female employment. So that, again, is a strong bit of evidence that the relationship between wages and employment is more complicated than the conventional wisdom um, allowed for. Now, how is that possible? Well, I think that a simple, plausible explanation is that the conventional wisdom is based on the assumption that a labour market is close to the economist's ideal of a perfectly competitive market, but that's not really the case. I think that employers actually have some power over their workers. If, they cut, if, you, if an imp- your employer cuts your wages, you may not like it very much. You may, um, you may start to look for another job, but you, don't really, you can't leave straight away and so on. And what that means is that we actually don't think that it will only be the demand for labour that affects employment. It's going to be also the supply of labour affects employment. And so the actual level of employment we see is going to be a balance between demand and supply factors. And if you raise the minimum wage or you raise the pay of women through the Equal Pay Act, you may reduce the incentives of employers to hire workers, but at the same time you raise the incentives of workers to work. And so it's not immediately obvious what is the effect on, on total, total employment. And so that has you know, the implications that over some range, the minimum wage may not lose jobs and may even raise employment. But it's important at that point to, to put in a caveat. I don't think there's anybody in their right mind who really thinks there isn't some minimum wage that might would cause job losses. So your current minimum wage is £6.50 an hour. What about £65? What about £650? There's, there's some point which is too, too far. So I think everyone pretty much agrees with that. It's harder to know exactly where that point is. Um, but that really says that ultimately it's going to be empirical evidence on what is the effect of minimum wages that we have um, that is going to help us decide theory is, is not enough. It's not So that's what motivated our early research on wages councils. And and we basically found that there was no evidence that the minimum wages set by the wages councils had caused job losses. And if anything, higher minimum wages seem to be associated with with higher employment. Um, Now, you know, we first published that research in early 1992 in the run-up to the general election. And the the Financial Times... um, then editor of the financial, Labour editor of the Financial Times was David Goodhart, who's better known these days for other, other things. But he sort of published um, this article about a week before the general election, saying that actually, um, you know, doubts cast on minimum wage linked to job loss, which is about, about our research. Now, everything, um, those of you like me can remember that, was extremely jittery. The opinion polls were very, very tight in this election actually suggested that Labour was going to win a slight majority. The opinion polls turned out all to have been wrong, but um, that's what it suggested. And so everyone was very, very jittery at this point. This was published in the FT, and basically uh, a chief executive of, of the British company, which at the time um, 
owned Burger King and a number of other chains, saw fit to, to ring up the director of LSE to ask him to stop us talking about this kind of stuff. Um, now, the director at the time, who I think was fairly conservative in his, his, his views, actually handled it very well. He just said, look, I can't, top you know, I, I can't stop these people. Why don't you talk to them after the election when everything has calmed down? But you know, this was the first inclination, again, is indicating quite how controversial this was, um, this was at the time. But the Conservatives went on to win the 1992 election. They delivered their election promise. They abolished the wages councils in 1993, claiming that that would lead to increases in employment. Again, we were doing research about, is that the case? Is that true? And our research suggested it did not. And from 1993 to 1997, there was basically, except in agriculture, no wage floor in the UK. And you began to see sort of very, very low rates of pay um, kind of emerging. So the example I've got down here, I always suspect that David probably insisted on this being in the first report of the local pay commission. Um, you know, a job advert saying security officer, two pounds an hour, must provide own dog. Um, and other examples in which um, hiring the guard dog was more expensive than hiring the, um, the, the person who looked after uh, the dog. So things, there was some pretty extreme stuff go going on. We then come to the 1997 election. In a way, we've got the same, uh, you know, the same difference in party policies. Labour, again, proposing a national minimum wage. Conservatives opposing it. Lots of scare stories about how hundreds of thousands, even millions of jobs were going to be lost. Um, but differently from 1992, Labour won that election, Tony Blair won that election, and basically he's uh, then set about establishing a minimum wage. So the first thing he did was set up uh, the Low Pay Commission. I mean, David was a, a founding member of the, of the Low Pay Commission. And the structure that was set up then has pretty much has stayed really unchanged to this day. So the Lay Pay Commission uh, typically consists of employer and worker representatives, um, plus a number of independents, David being one of the independents. Um, it makes recommendations to the government on, on the level of the minimum wage and the form the minimum wage should take. And its recommendations have not always been accepted, but pretty much have been accepted with a few minor little uh, details. And, and one of the characteristics of the Low Pay Commission that I think has been very important has been that it's, it's very clearly taken an evidence-based approach to things. So there's quite a, I don't think there's a great deal of ideological or political posturing. If you put forward an argument that you want the minimum wage to be, go up a lot or a little, you'd be asked to provide some evidence to support that. It's also commissioned its own research a lot, um, and as a result, that has, you know, it, it, it's, it's remained um, evidence-based policy in a way that perhaps some other policy areas um, have not done so. And I think that's been one of the reasons it's been so successful. So it produced its first report in 1998, and in April 1999, the, the national minimum wage came into being. I think it's fair to say the Low Pay Commission was initially quite cautious in setting the level of the minimum wage. It was set at a relatively uh, low level of then of, of £3.60 £3 uh, an hour. Um, and it took the approach that we're going to start off with a, a lowest level, and then we're going to look to see what happens, and then if, um, you know, because this was the context, again, people talking about there are going to be hundreds of thousands of jobs lost as a result of this. If that turned out to be the case, then perhaps we would, you know, go back a bit. But if it didn't turn out to be the case, we'd, we'd, we'd increase it more. 
And basically, the research that was done, which I'll say a little bit more about, um, suggested that there weren't really any detectable job losses at all. And so after a few years, the minimum wage start, they started to increase the minimum wage a bit faster than um, average, average earnings. So this graph here gives you um, the minimum wage, the adult minimum wage as a percentage of median hourly earnings. So it started off probably around about 47% of median hourly earnings, and now um, it's up almost at uh, 55%. Um, now, in, in recent years... Um, real, as I'm sure most of you know, real hourly earnings have been fallen, fallen quite a lot. So this doesn't mean that the real value of the minimum wage has gone up and up and up in, in this period. Um, but it has gone up faster than, than, than median earnings. Um, and so the current level of the minimum wage is sort of, it's got this form, £6.50 an hour. Um, for some context, 11.54 is median hourly earnings. Um, they announced this week that it was going to go up to £6.70 this coming o October. They're lower rates for younger workers and still lower rates for apprentice apprenticeships. Um, so that's basically what the LPC does. If you ask how does the LB LPC arrive at its sort of decisions, I think its general view is that it would, you know, it comes to the attitude we would like to increase the national minimum wage. But the limit to how fast we can do that is, is set by fears about job losses. And so the initial level of the minimum wage, as I've already said, was low because I think there were perhaps fears that dangers of it being too high and having to cut it were bigger than the dangers of being too low and then raising it. Um, but, you know, as I've said, they then subsequently... Research was very important in reaching the conclusion that job loss... There weren't really job losses from it. And then the minimum wage was increased faster than, than median earnings. So, you know, has the minimum wage had any impact on the UK um, labour market? And the answer is just a very clear yes. Here's a picture um, that illustrates this. This is a, a sort of a picture of the distribution of earnings um, in, the U, in the UK. Um, and up to a certain point, the highest earnings earners are not on this, I should say. But you can see the, the sort of turquoise line in 1997. There's a long left-hand tail of really very low earnings. And by the time you get to 2007 and 2012, um, that's basically disappeared. And you've got a big spike, a sizable spike of people. I shouldn't say a big spike of people. It's a bit over 4% of people in 2012 who are actually being paid um, the minimum wage. And you can also see um, that if you ask that the national minimum wage has helped to reduce uh, wage inequality in, in the bottom half of the, the wage distribution. So uh, this picture here gives us the... So if we look first of all at the pink line, which is the fraction of people called extremely low paid um, in, in the UK. So extremely low paid here means earning less than 50% of, uh, of the median. Um, what we see is that through the 1980s and through the 1990s, um, this rose quite a lot. Um, but then round about when the minimum wage came into, into force, um, it started to decline and has now fallen to really kind of uh, very low levels. So the minimum wage has really been very successful in uh, removing extreme low pay uh, from the UK labour market. Well, what about job losses? As I've said already, prior to it being introduced, some estimates suggested that 
up to a million jobs were going to be lost. And those really only turned out just to be sort of scare stories. And I think it is true that those who had sort of told those stories lost a fair amount of credibility in this process because we would have noticed if a million jobs had been lost. I mean, looking at empirically what happened, sorting out the effect of the minimum wage from other factors, it's hard. But if the minimum wage had caused a million jobs to be lost, that's something everybody would have noticed. Um, And virtually none of the research commissioned by the low-pay commissioners really ever found evidence of of significant job losses. Some work that we did did find some very modest job losses among care workers in uh, retirement homes. But that's a sort of a sector where 30% of workers are paid the minimum wage, where the, um, where the price that can be charged is capped by the government and so on. But on the whole, there's really very little evidence there were any job losses. Um, and I just kind of want to show a picture which I think conveys that by looking at the long period changes. Often we kind of, in this research, we look at changes just from one year to the next, but I want to look at longer changes for the period 1997, which is before we had the national minimum wage, to 2007, which is before the crisis began to sort of mess everything up a bit. And the basic idea here is that the national minimum wage, I mean, it is what it says on the tin, a national minimum wage, and that means it's had a bigger effect on low-paid workers, um, on groups of workers who tend to be low-paid. So it has a bigger effect on women than men, on the young than the old, and in lower-wage regions than higher-wage regions. So it has much less impact in, in London than it does in, say, Wales. So basically, what I want to kind of show you are some pictures of the way in which wages has, have, has changed in these different segments of the labour market defined by gender, age and region um, over this 10-year pe- over period. So you get this kind of picture here. So on the horizontal axis here, we have a measure of how much... A, so each of these dots represents a, a gender, age and a particular region. So on the horizontal axis here, we, we have a measure of... is. Um, Um, how much impact there is of the minimum wage on the group based on how low paid that group was in 1997. So the the, the dots down the left-hand side are going to be old men in London, sort of people like me, I guess. I don't really kind of like to think about that, but anyway. And the people on the right are going to be sort of young young women in Wales, or or young men and young women actually earn similar amounts. And what we have on the vertical axis... Here is the percentage change in wages um, sort of normalised over this 10-year period. And it's very, very clear that the lowest paid, the groups that were lowest paid in 1997 have had a bigger increase in their earnings than the groups that were higher paid in 1997. And so that's the minimum wage. Just, Just really, really obvious that it's had a big effect on wages. Now let's do the same for employment. So the horizontal, the vertical axis now is the percentage change in employment rates of those groups. And what you can see is there's no relationship whatsoever. So, you know, that in a nutshell is the argument that the minimum wage has just had a very clear, very obvious effect on wages without having really any effect at all on on employment. And there's lots of other, you know, it's just two graphs, but, um, you know, that's basically the conclusion. There's an awful lot of other research. But having said that, I think we are now in a situation where uh, the Low Pay Commission has been really become quite cautious about further rises in, in the minimum wage relative to average earnings. 
And one of the problems that we face now is that we're sort of getting to, in recent years, we're looking at smaller and smaller rises in the minimum wage each year, sort of 3%, 2-3%. It's then very hard to get a good estimate of what happens to employment as a result of that because these changes are quite small relative to the, all the other stuff that's going on in the labour market that is effect, affecting employment. So when we went from not having a minimum wage to having one, that was such a big change, you could clearly identify that relative to, to other things. So I think I'm, one of the concerns that one has now is that one, we're not actually learning a great deal more about what the employment effect of the minimum wage is, is from the sm- sort of small changes we're currently seeing. But that sounds a little bit petty because, you know, as David has already said... The national minimum wage and the low pay commission have really been fabulously successful. So again, you know, I can't really underestimate, overestimate how controversial this sort of was 20, 25 years ago. Um, but the Conservative Party, you know, which having opposed it in 1997, opposed it in the 2001 election. By the 2005 election, um, we are now, um, you know, David Cameron, George Osborne saying yeah, the minimum wage is a really good policy. There are different, you know, differences of opinion about what the level should be, but whether there should be a minimum wage at all, um, there's really no sizable lobby in the UK uh, now campaigning for the abolition of the minimum wage. And as David said, the Institute of Government voted it as the most successful UK government policy of the last 30 years. I'm not quite sure if I agree with that, but anyway, but it's certainly been pretty successful. And that success has been noticed um, in other, other places as well. So this movement towards thinking actually the minimum wage is a, is a good policy has not been confined uh, to, to the UK. And um, the success of both the UK's minimum wage and the sort of institutional arrangement for setting minimum wages, the low pay commission structure, quite a lot of other countries have, 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 have been following that kind of structure. So even countries which we think of as being sort of really quite sort of free market oriented, Hong Kong introduced a minimum wage in 2011. Germany has done so from um, 2015, just last month. Um, and again, they've imported, they were very interested in looking at the British experience in the, in the way in which the low pay commission was set up. They've sort of mirrored uh, that kind of structure. So, uh, you know, the UK experience... Not alone, but it's been an important part of it, has had a big effect. And the sort of professional advice of economists and international organisations has, um, has, has changed a lot. So I gave you earlier a quote from the OECD saying, we think minimum wages is a very bad, it's a bad idea, but if you must do it, you know, do it in this way. Now we see something like this. This comes from a 2012 joint report of IMF, OECD, ILO and World Bank, who don't always agree with each other, um, to the G- uh, G20 conference. And they basically said a statutory minimum wage set at an appropriate level may raise labour force participation at the margin without adversely affecting demand, thus having a net positive impact, especially for workers weakly attached to the labour market. So there really has been quite a very marked shift in, um, in attitudes. Um, but what about the future for the National Minimum Wage and the Low Pay Commission in in the UK? Well, it's been very successful, as I've said. So one argument is really just, well, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Um, But there are these concerns that actually 
it's now sort of um, 15 years old or so, so it should be this sort of teen, rebellious teenager, but it's really more prematurely middle-aged. Um, and, you know, the, the, as I've already said, the low-pay commission has become quite cautious, it's become quite short-term, um, and we're learning rather little from relatively small changes in the minimum wage. And that's in the wider context of there really still is a problem with um, persistent low pay in, in the UK. So if we go back to this graph that I showed you earlier, I said that the UK had a minimum wage, low pay commission, very successful in reducing extreme low pay in the UK um, economy. Um, those earning less than half median earnings. But the top line is the fraction of workers who are paid less than two-thirds of median earnings. And what you can say, see is that the minimum wage has really had absolutely no effect on that fraction. And that's because the minimum wage is set at a level which affects the extremely low paid but doesn't affect these low paid workers. It's just not set at a high enough level. So it hasn't really addressed wider problems of, of low, low pay. Um, and currently we're in a situation where basically all the political parties are sort of pressing for, um, uh, you know, some change um, to uh, minimum wages in the UK. I mean, even, I mean, about a year ago, George Osborne sort of dropped a heavy hint that he thought that £7 an hour uh, was affordable, which was a, a little bit um, sort of surprising. Um, so they're kind of different ideas for sort of perhaps the way in which we should alter the Low Pay Commission and the minimum wage in order to um, sort of inject a, rejuvenate it a bit. So one view is that, um, that it should have a wider remit. So really, although it's called the Low Pay Commission, it's really become just a minimum wage commission. All it thinks about doing is setting the minimum wage from one year to the next. Um, it doesn't have a remit to actually focus on wider issues of low pay, which might have other causes, other solutions, and so on. And, you know, one view is that it should be such a body. It should have a wider remit um, <coughs> to address low pay more generally, perhaps using tools, suggesting things other than the minimum wage to do that. Um, it should perhaps have a more strategic and longer-term vision. So, for example, the Labour Party, I think, is probably going to fight uh, the current election, saying that it wants to have a minimum wage of £8 by the end of the next Parliament, which is a, a target of about 58% of the median. Um, we're currently not uh, a bit below that, but not that far below that. And they want the Low Pay Commission to sort of say things like, well, if you want £8 in five years' time, what are the problems that may, may cause? Um, and there are other ideas out there as well. So, uh, you know, a very, one of the more successful grassroots organisations in recent years has been the Living Wage Movement. That's currently pressing for um, the living wage is sort of 7.85 an hour in, in, in the UK as a whole, 9.15 in, in London. Uh, for some people, it's sort of just a sort of higher minimum wage. For other people, it's sort of um, thinking about, well, the minimum wage provides an absolute flaw, but there are actually other employers who can afford to pay higher wages, um, even though they're paying higher than the national minimum wage, so perhaps we should encourage them to pay the living wage. Some people are arguing there should be higher minimum wages in London, perhaps in some industries that can afford it, and so on. Um, so perhaps I'll kind of leave all that for the, um, for the discussion that we're going to have. But 
So I'll just sort of conclude by saying, well, 25 years ago, it really looked like the minimum wages were just disappearing, actually. Um, but now it doesn't look like that at all, not just in the UK, but in other countries as well. You see it's a very active area of policy and debate. The research that's been done in the UK, including the research done um, here at CP at LSE, and the UK, wider UK experience has played an important role in that, in, in basically giving out the central message that minimum wages can reduce wage inequality without harming jobs. But so they're a good thing. I do feel, feel I should finish by saying, but don't expect wage, minimum wages to do everything. So they are useful, but there are limits to what, you can, that what they can do, and so they need to be seen in a wider context as well. I'll just stop there. Alan, thank you very much indeed. the force. Nicola, over to you to respond, please. Thanks, um, thanks very much indeed, Alan, and thanks for the opportunity to, um, to respond to that um, fascinating presentation. Um, I'm going to speak for about 10-15 minutes, um, and what I've been asked to do is reflect on the role of evidence in um, minimum wage policy process. I do that from the perspective, as um, was said in the introduction, as the head of the TUC's Economic and Social Affairs Department, and part of what I have to do in my role is pull together the TUC's evidence-based case for the Low Pay Commission every year and lead the delegation of trade union officials and trade union um, congress staff to make our case to the Low Pay Commission. Um, I want to talk a very little bit about the history of, of the minimum wage, think about how the process works now and what the role of evidence is there. Um, think a bit about that recent political debate that Alan focused on and also about what we know about how the labour market and our politics have changed since the Low Pay Commission and the minimum wage were introduced and perhaps what that means for the need for evidence in, in the future. Um, so Alan talked a lot about, um, about the difficulties and the challenge of that the Labour government faced when they were setting up the Low Pay Commission and introducing the minimum wage. And I, I looked back at some of the parliamentary debates um, this afternoon from the time when I was preparing this just to see just how rigorous, well, how strong the opposition to the attempt to introduce the minimum wage was. And I think it's an interesting way to reflect on what this relationship is between evidence and policy, because actually, at the time, those who were arguing against the minimum wage were absolutely resolute they had evidence on their side. Um, we heard that the, from the CBI that a low minimum wage, even a low minimum wage, would reduce job opportunities and create major problems for wage structures in a range of companies. We, we heard that a million jobs were absolutely going to be lost, and that that's what the evidence told us. We heard that the North East Chamber of Commerce said that 50% of employers were going to cut their workforce, 61% were going to... Um, find it difficult to maintain pay differentials. Um, and we had this huge wave of opposition to the idea of the policy ever um, coming into practice. The parliamentary debate told us that the health budget was going to be overblown, the cost of paying all these workers more was going to mean there wasn't enough money to take people to hospital, um, there was going to be an impact on patient care, people were going to stop training, there would be no point, there would be no jobs for them to go to because this minimum wage rate was going to compress pay rates so much, it was going to be pointless trying to progress in the labour market. Um, but despite 
this wave of apparently evidence-based argument against the introduction of the minimum wage. It was political will which led to its introduction, but political will that was supported by a growing evidence base which allowed politicians to make evidence-based arguments on the other side about the fact that by preventing a race to the bottom you could grow a higher productivity labour market, about the evidence that suggested that if you enshrined minimum standards you could both boost employment and improve pay rates at the same time. Um, and it was also that evidence that allowed the trade union movement to come to support the minimum wage. I, I look back and the TUC voted to endorse the minimum wage, I think, in 1986. Um, so we had quite a long campaign between then and 1997 when it was introduced. And I know I wasn't in post, but um, in the run-up to the 97 election, I know that the evidence base was discussed in quite some detail by the trade union movement and those who were involved in making policy, in helping convince people and allay those fears that people might have had, um, sometimes on the left, about the impact the minimum wage would have for collective bargaining, about the labour market impacts it could have. Um, but I think it's my sort of conclusion, really, from reflecting back on, on the debate when the minimum wage was set up, is that the evidence helped um, support those who wanted to make the political case. Evidence was used by those who wanted to make the case against it. Um, and it was always, at the end of the day, politics and political will that had to go hand in hand with that evidence to achieve change. Because, you know, if you read the debates at the time, you heard Margaret Beckett when she introduced the legislation in the minimum wage bill saying that the reason that it was going to happen was, yes, because the economics were good, yes, because this was not going to lead to the job losses that some forecast, yes, because there was going to be an evidence-based process to assess the impacts and to ensure that if they looked to be having a detrimental impact on labour market opportunities, there would be adjustments made, but also because it was just... So there was a social justice argument that was made and that was made very strongly about why it was the right thing to do to not have a country where people were working, um, examples were given in Parliament of in a chip shop for 80 pence an hour, for example. Um, I, I was aware I was speaking at the LSE. I adjusted it for um, RPI. So um, £1.27 in today's money. So that gives you a sense of the sort of wage rates that people were, were looking at. Um, so... So how does um, evidence work in the process now? Well, as Alan said, there was a sort of very cautious period to start with. Um, I think that was because there was a sense that the Low Pay Commission needed to embed itself and to look at what the evidence was of the introduction of the rate. It was also, again, this interaction of politics because of the politics. Um, I wasn't there, but I know that you know the LPC was working under some direction from those in charge at the Treasury to make sure that it didn't overshoot the mark. So you know, there's always been that sort of interaction. Um, we then had that period of more substantial rises based on the fact that the evidence revealed there was no negative impacts that could be determined and that jobs continued to rise at the same rate as pay. And then more recently, we've had this more cautious period again. And I think it's sort of very interesting that you know we went from a position where the business lobby were completely opposed to um, the minimum wage ever being introduced to a point where now, if you read um, the CBI's press release to the most recent minimum wage um, announcement, which um, was made, but, but not really made, I'll, I'll get onto that in a minute, um, just recently, um, they say that the minimum wage has been one of the most successful policies of our times, but the independence of the Low Pay Commission has to be protected. So we've now got um, those who are concerned about the 
direction of recent debate and the opportunities that, as Alan set out some of them, that are being presented for perhaps strengthening the low-pay commission or thinking about how it could be more ambitious or how we could do more to low-pay, that this argument of the independence of the commission is, I think, at risk now of becoming an argument that is being used by perhaps those who are small-c conservative in their views about how ambitious policy can be in driving labour market change. So the pendulum's almost swung you know, completely the other way. You know, there's a sort of risk now that those who are defending the evidence become um, those who are trying to resist change rather than argue that you need to be ambitious and make change, albeit informed by evidence, as you, as you go. Um, and we've seen an example of, I think, some of the low-pay commission's caution recently with, with youth rates. So, you know, the low-pay commission has been very, very cautious with youth rates in recent years, rightly so. Youth unemployment has been very high. Um, but the labour market, you know, has been staging somewhat of a recovery, certainly in terms of employment levels um, over recent periods. But the youth rate increases have been, in every year, apart from the proposals for the year ahead, um, very much less than those that are proposed for adults. And certainly last year we felt there was a very strong case for a more substantial increase in, in the youth rate. Um, that didn't come about, but then now we have data on what actually happened to youth wages over last year. And we find that the average rate of pay for young people increased, I think, something like three times faster than the minimum wage rate increase for young people over that year, which is quite astounding given that the proportion of young people who are paid the minimum wage is much higher probably than for the cohort of many other age, than is the case in the cohorts for any other age group. So we've got a situation where actually wages for young people as a whole have risen quite a lot faster than the minimum wage rate rose, and this year the Commission has recommended a 3.3% increase for young people, which is 0.3% of percentage point higher than the adult rate recommendation they're making. Um, interesting because um, you know, finally we're seeing some catch-up, but I think rather the evidence is um, the Low Pay Commission's decision is rather chasing the evidence rather than setting the way and being driven by evidence, as was the case in the, in the past. Um, briefly, um, what's changed since the minimum wage is introduced? As, as Alan said, extreme low pay is far less prevalent. Millions of people have been paid more and are now paid more. Um, but we have new challenges, I think, with more atypical work. Um, evidence and analysis we've done recently suggests that um, we perhaps have as many low-paid jobs being created in the economy as we did in the 90s, but we have an increase in the proportion of those jobs which are self-employed and which are atypical. So building services assistance, if you look at what happened with those jobs in the 90s and now, you find that there was a big increase in low-paid building service jobs in both periods of post-recession recovery, but that the proportion that are self-employed is much higher now than it was then. So the types of job people are doing um, is having more of an impact perhaps now on their pay and conditions than was the case in the past. Um, the proportion of all jobs in our economy that are low paid, as, as Alan said, hasn't really shifted and remains quite high by international standards. Um, the redistributive framework that accompanied the minimum wage, I think, has come under attack. Important to remember, I think, in this debate, that when the minimum wage was introduced, there was a strong argument needed to make work pay. That was through both the minimum wage and tax credits running side by side, and increasingly that in-work support that's available via tax credits, via universal credit in the future, is coming under political attack. Um, and we now know that rates of poverty, um, there's now more people in poverty who are in work than are out of work. So despite this very large increase in the minimum wage and despite the introduction of tax credits, poverty is a problem that affects more people who are working, or at least people who are in working households, than was the case in the past. 
Um, I think that has some implications for the minimum wage going forward. And in the last couple of minutes, I'll maybe just talk about that and political debate and how that fits with what's being discussed now. Because, you know, we've had this very long period of sustained falls in real incomes, particularly since the crash. Um, We've had, as a result... um, real concern about the incomes of those on the lowest incomes and we um, also have a period of extreme spending constraint when politicians from across the board are looking for opportunities to introduce measures which help voters that don't cost them too much money Um, hence I think a whole lot of conversations about the minimum wage, the Chancellor as Alan said implying that it could raise to £7 an hour labour in their um, proportion of median income target Um, and a sort of concern I think that the low-pay commission model may not be the model that can deliver the sort of more ambitious approach to tackling some of those challenges I set out um, in the same way, or at least that the low-pay commission may need to enter a new stage in its work if it's going to be able to do that. Um, We have seen real tensions. I talked about what actually happened with the announcement this week. Um, Well, you know, what's happened is that the business secretary has reported to the newspapers that he has received the report of the low-pay commission, and the low-pay commission has published its report. The government still has to accept the recommendations. This might sound like a sort of technicality, but in recent years, well, last year it was also, um, I think, leaked in advance of the government's formal response. Years prior to that, the government would generally announce at the budget what the minimum wage rates were. We've seen this sort of increasing push from politicians to be the first to introduce it and also a bit of a pushback against some of the low-pay commission's recommendations. Um, This year on apprentices, Vince Cable, the business secretary, asked the low-pay commission to consider in the government's evidence moving the apprentice rate to the youth rate. Um, The low-pay commission hasn't done that. We await the government's responses to what they'll do with that information. But I think we're starting to see, even from those in power at the moment, a bit of a pushback where they think the low-pay commission isn't being ambitious enough on the basis of the evidence and we're seeing certainly from the Labour Party a push to push towards reforming the low-paid commission in a way that it thinks will make it more ambitious and run maybe a little in advance of the evidence or work with the evidence more creatively than has been the case in in the past. Um, So I suppose um, a few areas just to finish with where I think maybe we need more evidence to help us shape the way for the challenges to come. Um, We've seen an increasing discussion in some international policy circles about the relationship between inequality and growth. Um, Frustratingly, at the moment, that tends to lead to people saying, oh, we've got this big problem with growing inequality, it's reducing growth, we need more skills and training. Um, I'm not personally convinced that that's the answer. And I think that, you know, labour market regulation and those who are concerned about improving job quality and reducing exploitative bad treatment at the bottom of the labour market need to think about how we can build the evidence-based case for other answers, which include wider aspects of labour market regulation in terms of terms and conditions, um, the role of unions, the role of collective bargaining in countries which have it in setting wage floors, preventing some of these worst types of jobs. Um, And I think we also need to think about the wider debate, taking it right back to the beginning, about the sorts of labour market challenges we have. Because we heard when the minimum wage was introduced... um, Philip Hammond, I think it was, said to the House of Commons that you know, the way to achieve a high-wage, high-productivity economy was to um, secure, have ultimate labour market flexibility, and that's what would take us back to sustainable growth. Well, we still have that argument about labour market regulation now. We still have that argument when it comes to things like zero-hours contracts, when it comes to false self-employment, when it comes to those wider types of work that people are doing. And I think you know, the arguments are still there, and you know, we need the evidence maybe more than we ever have to 
try and refute them and make the case that, yes, higher wage and better conditions don't need to lead to employment loss and can lead to the sorts of economically successful economies we need and can probably reduce economic inequality and promote prosperity far more than simply focusing on employment and training can. So I'll end it there, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Good, Nicola. Thank you very much. Okay, we've got uh, quite, a, quite a lot of time for questions. I, mean, I think there, there are some uh, people, in, people who are uh, LSE people who are going to come around with microphones. I mean, it, it, for, for what it's worth, I, I would maybe at some stage just like to say an odd word about, first of all, setting the rate low initially, but also if anybody wants to ask process questions, feel free to do so. We haven't discussed that very much. I mean, one of the interesting questions is sort of the, the, the role of the negotiations between, in a sense, the, the, what, well, let's call it the union side, the, the worker side and the employer side in, in uh, converging to the minimum wage and ensuring that uh, you get consensus, for example. And, of course, Alan, when he um, gave his uh, very elegant lecture, forbore from mentioning the M word. Alan, of course, wrote a, a very fine book on monopsony in the labour market and essentially, I mean, anybody who's interested in sort of on the technical side, the, um, the evidence on employment and the minimum wage, I mean, I think that there's a bit more to say on that. And, you know, if, if anybody wants to pursue that, uh, feel free to do so. I'll cut you off if it gets too technical. But, um, I mean, it, there's, a, there's quite a lot more to say than Alan had time to do. But anyway, uh, let's start. Sir, you, you catch my eye first of all. Garen Johns from Lancaster University's Work Foundation. Uh, Alan, I was, I was a bit less surprised than you were by George Osborne's advocacy of a higher minimum wage. Uh, one of the things that the living wage has thrown into sharp relief, and particularly with, given the nature of the recovery that we've had, is that there's a large and increasing number of people who are stuck in that range between the minimum wage and the living wage, and they're imposing quite a high cost on the exchequer in terms of benefit payments, in terms of in-work benefits. Uh, so it's clearly in the Chancellor of the Exchequer's interest to have a reduction in that bill. Uh, so I suspect that a large part of his advocacy will have come from there. I was wondering whether I could invite you to uh, comment a little bit more on the interplay between the minimum wage and benefits, and in particular, since you've sought to focus a little bit on the, uh, the future role of the Low Pay Commission, how that may come into the future role. Okay. <clears throat> is this on? Oh, it is on. Um, yes, no, I, mean, I, I, I think you may well be right about part of the motivation for George Osborne's somewhat surprising intervention sort of last year. But I, I, I'd add one thing to that, which is also that one of the central problems at the moment has been the sort of decline in, in living standards in, of the median person, who's going to be the person, how they vote is, is going to decide the election. And so everybody would really like um, real earnings to, to go up. I mean, a few weeks ago, David Cameron told the CBI, you know, they, can, they should start paying higher wages. Uh, again, that's not normally what you would hear, expect to hear from them. But, of course, nobody really has any idea of what lever you pull to make earnings at the median go up. So the minimum wage, even a higher minimum wage, isn't really going to push things up at, at the median. So I think he was also trying to create a wider climate which was more conducive to wage growth um, 
generally. So people thinking, well, if, the, if George Osborne says £7 is OK for the minimum wage, then I should get a sizable, in, um, a, a sizable increase as well. Now, the other point you made was, and I, I didn't emphasise it, so it's a good one, is that in the past, a lot of the minimum wage debate was about, if you think about trying to address problems with poverty, do you use the minimum wage or the tax and welfare um, system, and in particular, uh, tax credits, which has been sort of very fashionable in the last 15 years. And, you know, one of the other things that changed was that these came to be seen not as substitutes for each other, but complements to each other. So one of the problems with tax credits is that you can think of it as essentially a, a subsidy to, to low wages. And you want to make sure that that subsidy ends up in the pockets of, um, of the workers rather than, than the firms. And the minimum wage helps to prevent... Uh, employers from cutting wages in response to that. But I do think one of the things going forward is that our tax credit bill for um, working households has really ballooned somewhat out of control and there is a serious issue that we are really um, quite heavily subsidising low-wage low wage employers in a way that isn't really um, healthy. Um, and that's sort of Nicola touched on some of those things as well. Maybe I should ask you to say something. Well, I, I suppose just um, we've done a piece of analysis that I think suggests that the cost of the exchequer of the wage growth not meeting the forecast that the OBR had set out in 2010 is about £2.6 um in terms of what the cost has been in additional in-work social security costs. So that's you know quite a substantial sum. Um, put that in context, though, what's the overall tax credit bill? I, I think it's around £27 billion. So it's a proportion of it, but it's you know about a tenth. Um, in terms of what you would have saved. Why is it higher? Um, it's higher because tax credits are based on household income and are actually a really, really effective way of redistributing income to those on low household incomes. Um, and actually, when you increase wages, of course you increase household incomes amongst those who are in the lower incomes, but it is a less targeted way, actually, of improving the incomes of those who are the worst off. Those who are the very worst off don't work or they work very small amounts of hours. People who are on minimum wage or living wage jobs often live in households with someone else who's on a higher income. Um, so I always argue that you need both um, and they need to reinforce each other and there's a very good bit of work that was done by um, Howard Reed and Jonathan Porter as it was published by the Social Mobility and Child Poverty Commission and, and that made a very good argument I think that we need to argue for pre-distribution or for far stronger wage growth to make sure that we reduce the costs of in-work support but also so the higher wages of those higher up the income distribution um, can be redistributed back to support those at the bottom um, and you know and Wendy Carlin's made a similar argument with respect to industrial policy that we need to focus on high value sectors so we can take the resource from those and have a progressive taxation system to move that money back to those who are never going to be able to um, even with the highest minimum wage we could have um, earn enough to support them and their family and their two children to have a decent standard of living without extra redistributive help so um, I think it's really important to see the two together and See, also see how stronger wage growth reinforces the, the redistributive system rather than just reducing the need for it. Thank you. I think we've got a question here. I was wondering if you could comment on whether or not the minimum wage commission would have any impact on what we've been hearing about zero-hour contracts and things of that nature, because it seems like that seem, is being portrayed as a big problem in the news, and whether or not you think the low-pay commission should like be able to enforce something for zero hour contracts or avoid it altogether 
I mean, that's certainly one possibility for giving it a, a wider remit because one of the um, sort of responses we, would, we might expect to see employers, if they can't cut wages, they're going to try and reduce the number of hours that they have to pay you for. Zero-hours contracts are one form that that takes, but also things like people, um, social carers, treating people in their home but not being paid for travelling between jobs. These are ways in which employers can essentially try and subvert a bit the, the, the spirit of the minimum wage, right, if not the letter, letter of it. So I think there has been more emphasis on, 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 com, on compliance generally in recent years and tightening up on these ways in which people seem to do it. But at, at the moment, I think the Low Pay Commission feels very reluctant to really get too far involved in anything other than um, you know, saying, well, compliance must be taken seriously, people must be paid. So I'm not actually aware they've said anything about zero-hours contracts, have they? I, I think only in respect of enforcing the existing regulation and if it's, say, putting someone on a zero-hours contract and then using that as a means to not pay them for travel time, that would be a concern. So if you've got a social care worker and you said, oh, you're working yeah. half an hour here, then half an hour, four hours later, or you're on four half-hour shifts and you don't get paid for your travel between them, and the zero-hours contract is the vehicle for that, then yeah. that's something that you know the LPC would pick up on. But they, wouldn't, I, they would not absolutely make any um, statement at all about the regulation around the existence of zero-hours contracts or whether or not it's appropriate that we have... Um, an employment status system in the UK that allows that type of contract to be prevalent. Can I just add something about enforcement? I mean, I think you've put your finger on something which actually is very important. When I was doing the minimum wage, I did it from 97 to 2007. I don't think that uh, lack, sort of lack of compliance was a major problem. It was a problem here and there with Chinese and Indian restaurants, for example, but it wasn't. Since I, I've been doing immigration since then, and we recently did uh, quite a major study on low-skilled work, immigration and low-skilled work. And the, the compliance issue has, be, has actually come, I think, very much to the fore, and particularly with overseas workers. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not going to use the word exploited, but I mean getting paid less than minimum wage, and the whole subcontracting area and gang masters and so on. And I do think that the, the resources devoted to uh, compliance... Are insufficient. I mean, in, in our report, we, we point out that you'll get a visit once every 250 years and you'll get prosecuted once in a million years. So that, they don't strike me as very strong incentives to comply with the minimum wage. And so, I, I mean, and also the people who do it, they do the best job they can do, which is HMRC. Well, their job's to collect tax, it isn't to go around. It's sort of seeing whether the minimum wage is enforced. So I think the whole, it raises the whole issue of whether, for example, we should have a labour inspectorate, um, which could also then be dealing with you know, recruitment agencies, uh, uh, low, uh, um, zero-hours contracts. So I think that the point you've raised is a, a, a very important one, which actually deserves a, quite, a, quite a lot more debate than perhaps it gets. Uh, the question was here, please. The lady here. Lara Sogni, uh, Greater London Authority Economics and Intelligence Unit. I think my question is more about uh, the evidence available and in particular when we look at the relationship between 
you know, uh, increasing minimum wages, but also living wages and, uh, you know, employment, but also firms' investment in capital versus labor. So is there evidence around this argument that, you know, if we keep on increasing, for example, the living wage, but also we, we, we set higher rated of, rates of minimum wage, we then skew um, firms' decisions towards more investment in capital. And I'm thinking, for example, about technology, which is becoming you know, cheaper and cheaper than actual uh, investment in, in labor. So, you know, self-service machines and these kind of things. And do you think this is something that's going to be relevant, perhaps, if not in the short, medium term, in the long term? And is it going to have an effect on more on low-skilled uh, people and this segment of the labor market? And is there evidence or, or research around that? Okay. I, I'm not sure I'm going to give you evidence or research. I'm, I'm sort of going to say what I think, which isn't quite the same thing. I think that, first of all, I mean, I do think there is a limit to how high you could push the minimum wage without causing... Um, job losses. We don't really know uh, what that that limit is, and you know people are reluctant to actually reach that kind of point. You can look around the world at, at other countries that sort of have higher minimum wages in relation to average earnings. People would look to France and they would say, "Well, that labour market is very bad." But then you'd look at Australia and New Zealand and you'd say, "Actually, those places do quite well." They would have minimum wages often around sort of 60% of median earnings, and we're currently at 55. Um, you know, the living wage, if it was to be imposed as a, a universal minimum wage, currently would be about 65%, I think. So it's, it's quite a lot above, a bit higher than that, actually. It's quite a lot higher than anything we have experience of. But we're seeing a number of U.S. cities, um, places like Seattle and so on, passing... Um, very high minimum wage. We may be about to get evidence on what the impact of higher minimum wages is that we currently have experience of. We can't have evidence on things we don't really have experience of. I mean, I but I would say that there is an effect. I mean, to say that that ultimately is an effect is, is, I think, very clear. I mean, to give a very extreme example, if you visit a construction site in a developing country where labour is very cheap, you'll just see loads and loads of people doing things with not very much equipment. And you visit a construction site in a, in a sort of a, a rich northern country uh, where labour is much more expensive and you'll see many fewer people and you'll see much more, much more capital. The other thing you touched on there is the way in which technology is going to impact um, low-skill labour. I think actually low-skill workers tend to have been in sort of increasingly in personal service uh, type occupations which actually haven't done badly. Those haven't been the occupations that have been adversely affected by recent technological change. Uh, we still struggle to um, you know, develop a, ro a robot which is going to be able to pull you a pint of beer um, in a pub without making a horrible, horrible mess, um, both of you and certainly the floor. You know. So I, I, it's hard to say what will happen a long way out, but I, I, I don't think 
that's a reason currently for being cautious about what the minimum wage can do because of fears of technological, um, technological change adversely affecting these workers. I suppose I would just say briefly, I mean, there are many people beginning to argue now that um, the fact we've had such low wage growth and such substantial real wage falls for such a long period of time could be leading to um, problems for our longer term investment potential because employers are being incentivised to keep cheap labour on the go rather than investing in the more um, expensive but more productivity enhancing technology that might boost our longer term growth prospects. So you could sort of turn the argument around and say that if you keep wages too low you sort of disincentivise the productive investment that we might need going going forward. Um, And I think it's probably another area where um, you know, we need to probably proceed with a bit more ambition in terms of the speed at which we increase the minimum wage, but make sure we reflect on that, and that would be one of the issues you would want the evidence base to keep up with and to keep a close eye on as you, moved, as you move forward. But um, it's probably an area where we need to develop more evidence as things change and move forward, and I mean, that emerging evidence, Alan's talking about what's happening in US cities that have set substantially higher rates. Um, I haven't seen it yet. I, I look forward to it. It's, it's that sort of study that we need to push forward a bit more of the ambition in the policy debate here, I think, too. Good. Um, the man here with the glass, just there, yeah. thank you. Hi, uh, James Hegarty, a recent LSE graduate and who now works as an analyst for the Department of Business Innovation and Skills on the minimum wage. Um, so I've got a little question. Um, Do you think the dynamics of wage negotiation for those on low pay greatly differ to those slightly higher in the wage distribution? So kind of the the way pay is settled and and the dynamics and games that that, um, that results in? I'm not sure that I think there are huge differences from the ones slightly higher. I mean, I do think there are differences between the sort of average you know, the bottom half and the sort of top 10%. But I do think one of the problems that we've generally got with wage growth at the moment is that in the past, you know, when the labour market has been strengthening and inflation has been high, I mean, I know it's fallen very recently, you would have straight away had trade unions in there demanding higher wages. So they've been looking to raise wages at the first opportunity. We're now in a situation where in most of the economy, employers are looking to avoid raising wages to the last possible, you know, until they absolutely have to. And that, so that there's been that shift in the balance of, of power, um, which has affected, you know, the median as, as much as, as, as the lowest paid workers. And so I think that... You know, there may be there are arguments about we need to sort of redress that balance of power in, in setting wages. Actually, I, d- I didn't put this in, but Winston Churchill's quote when he worked for um, you know the 1909 version of Biz when he was the Vince Cable, he went on to say, you know, we have to have this because of the fundamental asymmetry in power between employers who are not really uh, desperate to employ this particular worker and low-paid workers who are desperate to, to get a job. And we moved, and, and that view that the underlying relationship was asymmetric lay behind a lot of labour regulation legislation. But we sort of moved away from that in the 1980s towards just the view that this is a relationship of equals, essentially. And I think perhaps we've got, we, we, we went a kind of a little bit too... Uh, too far in the other uh, direction. 
I mean, I, well, I, I suppose you know the, the big difference probably in how pay is negotiated is whether someone is in a, a unionised workplace where unions recognise for collective bargaining over pay and conditions or or not, and um, where that is the case, you know, there's still evidence even when you control for workplace type and size of a union pay premium and you know the, the evidence I think is is clear that where you have a collective approach to determining pay in terms and conditions workers get a fairer share and when what unions work best that is a result of negotiating with the employer recognizing there are different interests um, but that everyone has you know a shared interest in maximizing the company's potential and in achieving a settlement that isn't going to lead to anyone losing their jobs you know when people say oh unions are asking for excessive pay rises my response is always well why on earth would they ask for a pay rise that would lead to poorer company performance because who's got the biggest interest in the company doing well in the future but Alan's right it is a negotiation and um, perhaps I should have emphasized that more in my my remarks on the LPC because one big success about the model for us is that from the very beginning it was set up as a social partnership um, stakeholder involvement, a social partnership approach to setting pay and that it's one of the only bodies across government actually that still operates in that way and it recognises from the start that there are different interests, you know there are people representing labour on the commission, there are people representing employers and they're informed by evidence all the way through but at the end of the day it comes down to a negotiation that's set within the parameters of the evidence base as to what can be achieved and how much pay can go up by. I think for those at the very bottom, we know obviously that the minimum wage plays a much bigger role in determining their prospects and we know that in some companies the minimum wage is used as um, an indicator of wage rises for other people. So we saw, for example, last year I think Sainsbury's um, gave 3% across the board after the 3% minimum wage rise starting off. So I think it's important that we remember the minimum wage can also be a way to boost pay um, more rapidly across the rest of the economy given the impact it can have on quite big companies and the pay policy they introduce for more employees. Um, okay. um, Nick, Nikki mentioned um, the self-employed and if I understood her correctly she said that um, there were more people in building services covered by the minimum wage now than was the case in the 1990s. Um, Please say if, if, if that's not, not what you said. Um, but looking at the wider economy, um, the number of self-employed has actually increased quite significantly in recent years. Um, and we've seen in the aftermath of the CityLink administration that a lot of um, parcel delivery drivers are now self-employed. And I just wondered whether um, Alan and Nikki were concerned that... Um, Converting people to being self-employed is being used to um, to, to get round the minimum uh, minimum wage. Well, um, I mean, if I answer that first, I think um, I, I think that it is an ongoing problem, and, and you know, the point I was making, I suppose, is that it's normal after a recession that you see an increase in the number of people who are working in low-paid industries, but the big difference this time has been that more of those people are doing that low-paid work on a self-employed basis. So, you know, we've seen this um, sort of big spike in the number of people who are cleaners on a self-employed basis rather than an employee basis. Similarly, as you said, in distribution, you know, there's clearly been a very big shift in that industry in terms of the number of people who are doing driver jobs. You know, there was a bit of coverage in the run-up to Christmas. This has been the case for a long time now. I think over the last 10 years, it's been a trend that's growing more and more. Um, there was quite a few stories. People might have seen them in the press about people realising their Amazon parcels are being delivered for sort of 50p a parcel and that people are responsible for their own vans. And, you know, we've had horrendous 
case studies in the past of distribution drivers being self-employed, having to rent their own van, having to pay for their own petrol, um, ending up working 70, 80-hour weeks and then having to pay their employer back for their fuel costs at the end of, of the month. So, you know, it's definitely a growing concern that by classifying somebody as self-employed, um, they are therefore their own boss and therefore the minimum wage is not applicable. So I think the remarks I was making at the end are really that the big challenge for policy now, I think, is thinking about how we interact a system that attempts to set a basic pay floor with a labour market where you have an increasing variation in the types of employment status that people are engaged in and perhaps an increasing propensity among some employers at the bottom of the labour market to put people into very insecure, atypical types of work as a way to either um, avoid minimum wage regulation in, like, as in terms of zero hours contracts as, as we talked about by using contracts in a particular way to hold people's hours down or, or by putting people onto self-employed contracts or classifying them as self-employed so as to avoid having to be liable for the minimum wage in, in the first place. Um, so I think it is a growing problem. Some of it's um, cyclical. You know, full-time self-employment is now starting to fall as the labour market tightens a bit, but some of it is definitely structural, um, particularly part-time self-employment amongst women, which has been going up very rapidly and continues to go up even though self-employment overall is, is falling. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it is an issue. There is no minimum wage for the self-employed workers. I mean, that's, you know, it's up to you if you want to work for 10p an hour. Then that's your, you know, up to you. And yes, I think that we have seen round the edges um, some firms seeking again to subvert the spirit of the minimum wage, if not, the, you know, the letter of it, by moving people who are really employees onto self-employed status and then paying them less per hour um, as a result. So, I mean, that's one of the things, again, we talked about earlier about zero-hours contracts and so on that I think we need to pay a bit more attention to um, now than, than in the past. I mean, it, I should say, I mean, the, the number of self-employed has sort of gone up, the share of total employment has gone up at a sort of a couple of percentage points, I think. So although it's often talked about as a real really dramatic change, it's more like something from 15% to 17%. So it's not, you know, it's not... It's a sizable number of people, but not an enormous number. There was a lot of discussion when the minimum wage first came in about, in inverted commas, the definition of a worker. Yeah. And it may very well be that, that we need to revisit this in the light of this, the sort of question that you raise. There's a question here. Would one of the ways to address um, the issue of how far you can actually push the minimum wage in terms of how high it actually goes be to sort of set up a, a sector-independent investigation say, for care workers or, or manual labourers. Um, and that would sort of address the issue of uh, care workers not being paid. They're not actually going to pay these people any higher because that's where it's set as a sort of a base rate. And some sectors could actually afford to pay other people a higher minimum wage. Yes, I mean, I think that, I mean, there's no doubt that there are some sectors, and even within every sector, some employers who could afford to pay more. And so, you know, the living wage campaigns are essentially trying to, to flush those 
you know, em employers out so you can get an investment bank in Canary Wharf to promise to pay their cleaners more. That just costs the investment bank. You know, it's a good lunch, really. Um, a very good lunch. It should be a very good lunch. But, um, you know, but the, the trouble with it is a little bit that in order to address the problems of low pay, you have to go after the sectors where there are lots of low-paid workers. The number of cleaners in investment banks in Canary Wharf isn't really very many. And some of those sectors do face serious problems. I mean, social care is the worst problem because it's very, very labour-intensive. So if you start raising minimum wages um, there, you quite quickly you raise costs very fast there in a way that, for example, in the supermarkets you don't. The share of labour costs in total supermarket costs is actually quite low. It wouldn't drive up prices very much if you raise the minimum wage. But social care is a really a critical problem. It would raise costs a lot. Most of those costs actually are paid by government rather than anyone else. Um, so that is a much harder nut to crack, I think, than any other sector. But again, you know, that's part of the argument for, say, giving the low-pay commission a wider remit, that it could, say, think about, well, if we were to address the problem of low-pay and social care, which is very serious, how would we, what are the other things that need to change for us to be able to do that? I think, I mean, I would agree with all of that. A lot of these problems need a sectoral-based approach to understand what the drivers are of low pay and to think about what the range of solutions, which might include a range of minimum pay rates, government intervention, other measures to improve productivity and performance in the sectors together. Um, I suppose if we're thinking about what the relationship is between evidence and, and politics, I would say we need to have a system that has political commitment behind it to really addressing those problems because, you know, with social care, it's pretty obvious to everybody what the problem is. The problem is that the main purchaser of the social care, who is the government, isn't putting enough money in at the top to allow the contract price at the end to go up substantially. And as a society, we haven't got a, have figured out yet a method for funding our social care that would allow the quality of that care and the pay of the workers in the sector to be substantially more. So I think it needs a sector-based analysis, and it also needs that political will to take the sector-based analysis and priority, prioritise it as an area for policy change, because it needs the two working in tandem. Um, for this approach to actually work. And that's what we achieved when the minimum wage was introduced. And, you know, it's probably no understatement to say it would need a substantial shift and level of political commitment again, particularly given the range of vested interests and the voice who will speak out against some of the changes that might have to happen on a sector-based level to achieve those changes, to, um, to have that sort of change introduced one more time. I mean, licensing in the security sector is always used as an example of how standards were driven up. Um, widespread licensing across lower-paid occupations um, might be something that was resisted by very many people but might be a very good way to improve standards and quality and to allow wages to rise. So, you know, there's, there's important policy solutions on a sector base to, to think about. Good. Um, we've got time for one more question. Like young lady here. Sorry for the people who... Um, I was just wondering in terms of the lack of evidence as opposed to how high can we push minimum wage in tandem with what you were saying about enforcement not actually being that strong. Is there a concern that, aside from the loss of jobs, actually what might happen if we raise the minimum wage too high is just that compliance will go down? Yeah, I mean, I mean that is part of the concern. And certainly in some countries of the world which on paper have very high minimum wages, they basically, it's irrelevant because nobody bothers to play it. I think we are some way from that. But I, I do think, as David said, 
there needs to be you know, more active paying attention to compliance than, than there has been. Um, I mean, I'm, I might stand up for compliance a bit at the moment because actually over the last period of time, um, Liberal Democrat-led um, business department has done quite a lot on compliance. We've seen penalties substantially increase for employers who don't comply and we've also seen the government's naming and shaming. Well, the civil penalties have gone up a very large amount and actually the fines for civil penalties are now more than you can get if you prosecute someone through the court, which is an anomaly which needs to be fixed. But because HMRC are more likely to take a civil penalty, the civil penalty numbers are actually far more healthy looking than the prosecution numbers and, you know, demonstrate I think some action in this area. But the... um, Naming and shaming, something we pushed for a very long time, if someone underpays, they should be named and shamed in public, didn't happen for, um, you know, well, it's been years, really, of trying to push for it to actually take place. We've now seen over the last year, you know, yesterday, I think the government published a list of 100 employers who hadn't paid a few months ago. There was cases published. People protest, well, there was a big but it's employer. happening now. There was a big employer among them, wasn't there? There was H&M among H&M, them. H&M, that's and, um, it, yeah. You know, yeah. actually, the, the scale of non-compliance, some of the smaller employers was far more, and it was a far larger amount of money that workers had been underpaid, to be fair to H&M. But still, you know, the rule is, if you, it's pretty basic legislation. If you can't comply with it, you're going to be named and shamed in public, and I think that's a step forward. That said, I completely agree there is all sorts of wider non-compliance um, the case for a labour inspectorate you know the, the case that actually the interaction between wider employment um, rights violations and the minimum wage is substantial and that that's why you would need a wider approach to enforcement than just look at minimum wage on its own I think is very clear and you know HMRC do a very good job but with limited resource I mean one example they had an advertising budget of about a million pounds the first year of this government it was cut to nothing it was then reinstated back to 100,000 what's happened well awareness of what the actual rates are has has gone down you know because we didn't want money wasted on government marketing because it was a big waste of money well you know it's probably a million pounds well spent to make sure everyone actually knows what the rate is so it's that sort of very practical initiative which you know can actually make a difference as well good um sorry for the couple of people who didn't get to ask questions but we we have to vacate around around now um the Economist is an excellent magazine, but it is, a, it is a very much wedded to the free market, as it were. In 1997, it wrote the following. Coming up with a minimum wage that will not seriously harm the economy and destroy jobs will require the wisdom of Solomon or extraordinary luck. Thanks to research by people like Alan and the social partners, people like Nicola, by 2012, it wrote the following. The success of the Low Pay Commission points to the importance of technocrats rather than politicians setting wage floors. Britain's small regular changes may be easier for firms to absorb than America's infrequent but hefty minimum wage increases. Whatever their flaws, minimum wages are here to stay. So I think we've even uh, caused The Economist to change its tune. So we should thank Alan and Nicola in the usual way and thank you very much as well.